It's the Kim Munson Show, analyzing the most important stories. Socialization of transportation, education, energy, housing, and water. What it means is, is that government controls it through rules and regulations. The latest in politics and world affairs. Under this guise of bipartisanship and nonpartisanship, it's actually tapped down the truth. Today's current opinions and ideas. On an equal field in the battle of ideas, mistruths or misconceptions, and it is getting us into a world of hurt. Is it freedom or is it force? Let's have a conversation. Indeed, let's have a conversation and welcome to the Kim Munson Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You're each treasured, valued. You have purpose today. Strive for excellence. Take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body. My friends, we're made for this moment. And thank you to producer Steve, producer Luke, Zach, Patty, Keith, Charlie, Echo, all the people here at Crawford Broadcasting. Happy Monday, producer Steve. Okay, <clears throat> okay you went and did it. Let's uh, let's play a little Jeopardy here. I'm going to read you a definition. You tell me what the word is, okay? Okay. And you got to <clears throat> ask the question, what is whatever? So okay. let's be, do it right. A figure okay. of speech by which an inflection produces an incongruous, seemingly self-contradictory effect. What is Happy Monday? No. What is oxymoron? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah, sorry. Uh, the more famous ones are military intelligence, airline food, and I'm sorry, I'm going to have to add Happy Monday to that list. Okay. Now, you know, we had a listener that worked in military and, and intelligence that challenged us on that one. So, Well, okay. Uh, I can see both sides of that one. <laughs> Having been in the military, I can see both sides of that. Okay. Okay. But happy Monday. We've got uh, lots to do. Did you have a great weekend, Producer Steve? It was a good weekend. And, you know, the weather cooperated. And, uh, yeah. Well, I got to do something very fun yesterday. And that was to be the uh, uh, mistress of ceremonies for the uh, Phillips County Lincoln Day luncheon yesterday out in Holyoke. And um, they had a full house and really a great program. They just did a really super job. And so that was a lot of fun. My buddy Sue wrote, uh, wrote out with me, and we just had a great time uh, talking about what's going on. So uh, I want to congratulate uh, the Phillips County Republicans, uh, Steve Brown and his team, for the great job that they did yesterday. And it was really a, a great honor to get to be the um, mistress of ceremonies. So that was, that was a really special and a lot of fun. I uh, wanted to mention today, uh, we do have two tickets, and this is the final day that uh, tickets will be available for this Rise Up Colorado. It's Moms in Prayer who are coming to Colorado, and it's this next Saturday, March 25th, 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. at Pikes Peak Christian Church in Colorado Springs. It looks like it's going to be a really great event, and oh my gosh, with everything that's going on in this world, mothers coming together to pray for our children is so important. So call the front desk at 303-481-1800, 303-481-1800, and we will give away two tickets there. So again, that is uh, Moms in Prayer that are coming to Colorado, and so important, Steve. Well, I like the way you said that, the coming to pray for our children uh, against those who would pray on our children. Oh, yes. And that's not funny. And that is exactly where we are. And I think a lot of parents have no idea. I was talking with a parent this weekend about this Colorado legislation that uh, basically says that 12-year-olds can, first of all, a parent can request to opt out 
their kids of these data collection surveys that are being given in Colorado schools. But the uh, 12 years old or older can opt right back into that. And then also uh, 12 year olds and older can now say yes to some pharmaceuticals without parental knowledge. And so to your point, yes, we must pray for our children because there are those that are preying on our children. Very, very well done on that. Uh, Steve, I, I, good, good for you. I have one, one a week and you just got it. <laughs> we, just, we just got it right out of the, right out of the shoot. Well, good for you. Um, this, we get to have these conversations because of really great sponsors and I highly recommend uh, each and every one of them, if you're going to do business, um, uh, you know, have have something that you need, be sure and um, work with our sponsors because it is it's because of them that we're on the air as well as because of all the support that you all give us. We are an independent voice on an independent station searching for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And uh, I do thank all of you. Uh, sign up for our weekly email newsletter. Uh, you'll get first look at our upcoming guests as well as our most recent essays. And you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Text line is 720-605-0647. And a big show planned for you again today. We'll talk with uh, Ben Martin. Uh, and thank you to the Harris family for their sponsorship of this sh- uh, show. Ben Martin, we're going through a series on Lincoln. And, uh, and we'll be giving a little extra time to that because I think it's so important. I mean, we were in such tenuous times during the Civil War, and I really think that we're in tenuous times now so we can learn so much from Lincoln. And, uh, and one of the sponsors I did want to mention is Hooters Restaurants. They have five locations. That's Loveland, Aurora, Lone Tree, Westminster, and Colorado Springs. Uh, specials for lunch, specials for happy hour Monday through Friday. And great place to get together to watch the um, uh, March Madness. Uh, KU got knocked out, Producer Steve. Oh, my. I was supposed to check on that earlier because I know I spe- specifically took the time to go find your, your Jayhawks. And, uh, wow, bummer. Yeah, it was a bummer. It came down to the wire, but you know what? Um, they lost, and that it hurts. You know, it hurts, but but that's the way it goes. And um, so, anyway, the I think the what the um, Sweet Sixteen now. I haven't had a chance to look at all of that, but um, I'm, I will get up to speed on that as we get closer and closer to the finals. But a great place to watch the games is Hooters Restaurants. And again, five locations, Loveland, Aurora, Lone Tree, Westminster, and Colorado Springs. We got to know each other because of a very important story about freedom and free markets and capitalism, uh, where government wants to get out of control, and that's how we got to know each other. So I really do appreciate them on that. Our bill of the day is uh, it's um, Senate Bill 23178, Waterwise Landscaping and Homeowners Association Communities. It says concerning removing barriers to waterwise landscaping in common interest communities. Uh, sponsors are Senators uh, Sonia Waquez Lewis and Perry, and Democrat Perry Will, Republican, and Karen McCormick, Democrat. And uh, once again, Steve, this I don't think that this is uh, what the state legislature should be doing down there. This is, should be a local control issue. Uh, certainly understand um, water conservation, but I can't believe that the legislators down at the state house are getting down to 
you cannot prohibit the use of non-vegetative turf grass in the backyard of a unit's owner's property, not reasonably require the use of hardscape on more than 20% of the landscape, allow a unit owner an option that consists of at least 80% drought-tolerant plantings. I mean, quite frankly, I think this should be down at the very local level. I don't think that this is what the state legislators should be uh, focusing on when we have crime, inflation, uh, our kids are not learning to read and write and do arithmetic. And just took a quick look, as you know, as the um, president of the Colorado Union of Taxpayers, I'm working on the email that we'll be sending out this morning. If you want to get on that list, go to coloradotaxpayer.org and put in your information and just say, please add me to the email list. And then... um also, it's $25 to join. If you'd like to join Cut, we'd greatly appreciate it. But, Steve, we're about halfway through the legislative session, and there have been 489 pieces of legislation uh, proposed here in Colorado already. It's unbelievable, Steve. 489 new laws, and some of them are... I have to tell you, my heart gets heavy as I look at just this overreach of government here in Colorado. 489 just in this session, legislative session? Yes. Okay. So far, and we're halfway through. Hey, I don't want to redirect you here, but you got so busy talking about Ben Martin and Lincoln, you missed the quote of the day, since it is Lincoln. (laughs) It is. Okay, let's get over to that. And, of course, Abraham Lincoln was an American lawyer, politician, statesman. He was our 16th president. Uh, and he served as our president until 1861, um, from 1861 until his assassination in 1865. He led us through the Civil War to defend the nation as a constitutional union and succeeded in abolishing slavery. Um, it, he did bolster the federal government. Um, but uh, anyway, wanted to go with this. And uh, he apparently had a very um, good sense of humor and kind of a wicked wit. And I found this. I'd never heard this one before. And it is the quote is, how many legs does a dog have if you call a tail a leg? Four. Calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And I just thought, fast forward that to all of the redefinition of words that we have in uh, our our life today. And then I was immediately thinking about a boy, girl. If you call a boy a girl... It still doesn't make the boy a girl. And I thought, um, I mean, Lincoln, he nailed it back then. How many legs does a dog have if you call a tail a leg? Four. Because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. Calling a boy a girl doesn't make the boy a girl. And then we could go on with other redefinitions as well, Steve. Well, you know, everything, every word a politician utters has some kind of motivation to it. So... Ask yourself, what was his motivation on that one? Was he having to deal with uh, wokeism back then? Well, probably a different kind of wokeism. I mean, somebody uh, was obviously pulling his chain, and you know, to come out with that type of uh, an illustration yeah. is is pretty good. You know, and I, I wonder. Well, the big question of the day at that time was slavery. Um, you wonder what else. And, and actually, Lincoln had an amazing quote, and I might even use that at the end now. I can't remember if I did regarding corporatism. I think that I did, didn't I? Uh, um, anyway, I was reading. Let me just check and make sure. Yes, you will want to hear the quote for the end of the, the show as well. A uh, lot of news this weekend regarding Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank. Of course, uh, Credit Suisse, it looks like, is being um, taken over by a competitor. 
so the the banking um, the banking industry is is kind of in a tumultuous time right now. There's very good banks such as First American State Bank, Jay Davidson, who has uh, conservatively run their banks. And then these uh, woke banks, I mean, it sounds like the management of Silver Silicon Valley Bank, I mean, hardly anybody knew anything about banking. And uh, it uh, it actually goes to the, the, um, the term, go woke, go broke. Uh, but I was thinking about it on a bigger scale. Here we have the military going woke. What does that mean for us, Steve? We have education going woke. What does that mean? Um, country going woke. And apparently, uh, Silicon Valley Bank had pledged almost 70, I think $73 million to Black Lives Matter. I mean, they, they've taken their, their, their eye off the ball. But what is so interesting about this is, you know how altruistic the woke agenda is and that uh, the ESG um, environment, uh, social and governance, that that whole um, mantra there that, oh, we're we're going we're uh, virtue signaling that we're taking care of the environment and uh, social issues and involved in governance to make all these great things happen. But, hey, the management did a terrible job and the bank failed. But all those people that had their money in the bank, they want their money back now. And in a way, do you not think it's kind of a, a, a um, some kind of theft to take away from all of the other people in America to make all those depositors whole? And uh, apparently, Janet Yellen was asked if there were if uh, China had um, deposits in Silicon Valley Bank, would they make them whole on that? My understanding is she answered yes. Now, my friend told me that, so I did not source that. But my my friend is very trustworthy on that. Steve, I don't know if you heard that or not. I did. I was. I'm sorry. I was talking with Ben Martin too. But uh, yeah, it just makes me go think of um, Tom Hanks and a couple other guys. They produced an excellent series earlier in this millennium about the big decades of the the last century, the 70s, the 80s, and 90s. One of them, I guess it was the one from the 80s, they covered like the, the savings and loan failures and whatnot. And when you see that, those videos and those people standing in lines outside those banks, I mean, it, it hits you hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And but it's because of bad management and, yes. uh, and and taking their eye off of uh, what they're supposed to be doing, what their job is. And that's why when I say in the show, we strive for excellence. We have in front of us the jobs that we are to do each day. In fact, Martin Luther King Jr. said, if you are a street sweeper, be the very best street sweeper that you can be. And uh, again, moving away from meritocracy, moving to mediocrity, if not less, uh, and we're, we'll see the effects of this. So we need to, we we need to, to to refocus on these things that made America great. And one of those things is is keep your eye on the ball. When you got a job to do, keep your eye on the ball. I sound like a mom, don't I? <laughs> so with that, a show the show comes to you because of great sponsors. I want to get over here to to Ben Martin, but thank you to the Harris family for sponsoring the show. And uh, at the Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance agency. Roger knows that life can be challenging. It's the Mangans team's mission to maximize your financial security as you manage the risks of everyday life. Call Roger Mangan at 303-795-8855 for more information. That's 303-795-8855 for more information. Like a good neighbor, Roger Mangan's team is there. I can't believe I just scratched that car. Find my insurance card. 
Dude, what do you have in this glove box? Ew, are these socks dirty? Oh, forget about the socks. I need my insurance card. Just pull it up on the State Farm mobile app. But I can do that? Oh, hey, I can do that. Yep, it's called service. I can file a claim on here, too? Yeah, it's it's called service. Whoa, I can call my agent, too? It's called service. Three Points Financial, a comprehensive, fee-only financial and tax-focused company, considers all the pieces of a client's financial life. There are no sales or commissions involved, and all advice is fiduciary, putting the client first. Mary Alpers and Steve Cruz, co-owners of Three Points Financial, take time to work with you regarding decisions that affect your financial present and future. Whatever is happening in our world and with our economy, you have financial goals that matter. And Three Points Financial offers personal, real-time plans for savings, retirement, investments, and taxes, both tax efficiency and preparation. There is no better time than now to focus on your financial situation. If you are interested in learning more, contact threepointsfinancial.com to schedule a no-obligation introductory call. Stay up to date on issues in public health and science by signing up and reading Dr. James Lyons Weiler's latest articles at Popular Rationalism on Substack. Find more information about Popular Rationalism at KimMunson.com. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. I'm Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That's Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for a weekly email newsletter. And you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And uh, thrilled to have on the line with me, Ben Martin. And I thank the Harris family for their sponsorship of the show. We are talking about, we're in our series of Mr. Lincoln, his life and sword. Ben Martin, welcome to the show. Hey, Greetings, Kim and Steve. Glad to be with you. Always, always glad to be with you today. Well, thrilled and it's so important to have these conversations and look at what happened in our history because Lincoln was living through very dangerous, tenuous times. Uh, America was as well. And we're in dangerous, tenuous times now. So we can learn from, from what was going on there. So where do you want to start, Ben Martin? Well, good. We'll start like we did uh, we did last time, and, you, and you're so right about that, Kim. Uh, he was he was going through some really tough times, and America was very very uh, divided at the time. And we we can learn from him what he did, the things that he used, his character, his speeches, uh, his the decisions he made to to for us, so that we can navigate through these dangerous times too. So today we are going with our second interview as we look at another fascinating segment of the life and sword of Abraham Lincoln. As we said the last time we were together, Kim, we were studying Abraham Lincoln's life, paying special attention to his character, his gifts, and his actions that helped him to hold our union together at a time when a nation seemed so divided on so many issues that were being pushed by various groups with divergent interests or goals. These groups were taking actions that could potentially tear apart the America our founders had envisioned. These competing groups were infamously named by our founders in the Constitutional Convention of 1787 and the Federalist Papers of 1787 and 88 as factions, and again in George Washington's timeless farewell address of 1796 that would forever be defined as follows in Federalist Paper Number 9. By faction 
I understand a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or minority of the whole, who are united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interest of the community at whole. We have often talked about the two main objectives of our Constitution, Kim, and the purpose of our government. The first was protecting the God-given and unalienable rights of all citizens, as initially stated in our Declaration, and two, promoting the common good or the general welfare of the people and our American Union, as so plainly stated in the preamble to our Constitution. And Ben, I just want to ask you, when we talk about the uh, general welfare, um, what does that mean to you exactly? Well, what it meant to me, what it means to me, what it meant to our founders is what I look upon is they meant that it was a common good, that you, you could not serve the general welfare by by making something really beneficial to one group and making it not beneficial to another group, by, by giving to one and taking away from the other. And that's why we had our two houses in the Congress. And we had this divided government that would help uh, balance, you know, do the checks and balances so that we didn't advantage one segment or one section or one area of the country while taking away and disadvantaging another one. It had to be a compromise. It had to come together so that whatever action they took was good for everybody involved. And that's what they meant by the common good or the general welfare of all okay, parties. Thanks. Okay. And, so and, last, and again, yeah. just, just want to make that point. The general welfare yeah. does not mean that government takes one from one person and gives to another. Absolutely. Uh, it, it means exactly the opposite. It has to be balance. It has to be that it, it benefits all people. You know, maybe it right. benefits some people, maybe a little more than the others, but that's what compromise is all about. So, okay, and that's great. why, our, that's what our founders, that's what, that's what the Constitution, the government under the Constitution was meant to be. So last month we showed how in Lincoln's time these factions were pushing their impulse of passion or their interest that were adverse to other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interest of the community or the union. In 1838, we spoke about Lincoln speaking at the Young Men's Lyceum in Springfield. He effectively spoke against their lawlessness and the destructive actions that were manifested in violent mobocratic demonstrations, riots, fires, destruction of property, injury to citizens and police, even horrible deaths by burning and hanging. In that Lyceum speech, he argued that these actions were serious because they were not limited just to the victims, but to all people, that lawlessness brings brings about more lawlessness, that it destroys the people's confidence and attachment to their government as they perceive them to be ineffective, they meaning the government to be ineffective in enforcing laws and maintaining order and peace. He warned that ambitious men would take advantage of this lawlessness and violent riots and the people's detachment from the government to overthrow our constitutional government and introduce tyranny. And we see a lot of that happening today, Kim, like we spoke of last time. Yeah, I mean, just think about the summer of Black Lives Matter. It sounds, I mean, there's a lot of similarities. There are so many, you're right. 
and uh, over the the subversion or overthrowing the Constitution as well. Of course, the difference that we have is we have Lincoln and Biden right now, and uh, <laughs> that's a <laughs> so let's right? let's yeah let's continue on with Lincoln. And we can learn from that. <laughs> there you go. The solution he proposed is a strict in, in that speech that we talked about last week. The the Lyceum speech. And he was a young man then. He wasn't even 30 yet. The solution he proposed is a strict belief in our singular constitution and obedience to the laws. He said it should become America's political religion. He further warned the people to take no satisfaction in our nation having survived until this time. That's his time. That means we were only less than 80 years old, less than four score. He recommended reason in place of passion. And he famously prophesied that if America ever falls, it will not come from forces abroad. It will spring up among us. And he famously said, as a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. From this review, we realize that situation is much like what we talked about, the situation we face today. And we must know, as he will write in a later unpublished piece, we must study and understand the points of danger. Today, we will carry on with Lincoln's development and he go, as he goes from a businessman to a lawyer, and his interest shifts, and he later moves from the small village of New Salem to Springfield. So that's we'll talk about his early life. During the, okay. our last, okay, during our last look, we... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, uh, just this question. How, yeah. how at this young age could he foresee that? How do, how do you think he knew that? I, I think he studied a whole lot, as we learned, last, as we learned in, last, uh, in our last interview, it, from his friend, friends that were around him. You know, Lincoln loved to read. He loved to study. He loved to think. Uh, he loved that a lot more than physical labor, for sure. And, and he would, he had such a great mind. Uh, he once said, my mind is, is like iron. He said it takes, it's hard to scratch it, but once you scratch it, it's there forever. And uh, I don't think it was that hard for him to scratch it, but it was mostly there forever. He learned from everything he read and studied. And so he understood, he understood like our founders did, history and the lessons from history. And by this time, Lincoln had reached so when, when Lincoln, uh, during that last time, we recall that his father moved his family, again, from Indiana to an area along the banks of the Sangamon River around Decatur, Illinois, in 1832, in 1830, I'm sorry. And by this time, Lincoln had reached the legal age of 21. And because he was having a rough time with his father, he decided to set out on his own. He traveled along the Sangamon River until he reached the river village of New Salem, Illinois. That's about 20 miles northwest of Springfield, Illinois. There, Lincoln met a commercial entrepreneur named Denton Offit, who hired Lincoln to take a flatboat of goods down the Sangamon River to the Illinois River, to the Mississippi River, and then down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. Offit was so pleased with the job that Lincoln had done on that assignment that he hired him as manager of his new store that he had opened in New Salem. The store manager position was a good fit for Lincoln. He was meticulous in his bookkeeping, 
and he was a favorite of the local customers due to his ability to engage them in lively conversations and entertain them with his interesting stories and tales from the books he read. They were written by authors such as Shakespeare, Burns, and Byron. Offit believed that Lincoln could do just about anything, and he challenged Jack Armstrong, the gang leader of a rival store, to wrestle Lincoln. When Lincoln fought him, fought this guy Armstrong to a draw, Lincoln gained a great deal of respect from the gang, their leader, and many of the townspeople. All was going well for Lincoln in New Salem, and in March of 1832, he entered the race as a candidate for the Illinois State House of Representatives. That's 1832, and he's a representative from Sangamon County. Then, later that spring, the Black Hawk War broke out, and New Salem was ordered to field a militia company. The men of that militia company elected Lincoln as their commander. This was Lincoln's first election win and gave him great satisfaction. And as he said many years later in different autobiographical sketches, this was my first and most memorable election. Oh my gosh. Let's, let's, um, continue on that conversation in just a moment. We get to have these conversations because of the Harris family, great sponsor of the show, as well as Remax, uh, realtor Karen Levine. Award-winning realtor Karen Levine has nearly 30 years of experience with Remax Alliance. As a director with the National Association of Realtors, Karen Levine works to protect private property rights. Karen Levine believes in home ownership. Because of Karen's love of dogs, Karen volunteers regularly with GRRR, Golden Retriever Rescue of the Rockies, helping Golden Retrievers find their forever homes. Call Karen Levine to help you buy or sell your home because she understands that it's more than just a house. Call award-winning realtor Karen Levine with REMAX Alliance today at 303-877-7516. That's 303-877-7516. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Munson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, kimmunson.com. That's Kim, M-O-N-S-O-N, dot com. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. I'm Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter there. You can email me at Kim at Kim dot com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And uh, I want to just mention the USMC Memorial Foundation. Uh, it is a nonprofit that I have adopted, and it's uh, because of the work that I've done with veterans through America's Veterans Stories. And of course, Ben Martin, who we have on now as a veteran, he's a West Point graduate and a former Army Ranger. But uh, the USMC Memorial Foundation is a special place. It's out at 6th and Colfax. It was dedicated in 1977. And Paula Sarles, the president of the USMC Memorial Foundation, and her team are raising the money for the remodel. And uh, it's a beautiful project that they're working on. You can help them by going to USMCMemorialFoundation.com That's USMCMemorialFoundation.org to uh, make a a donation, or you can actually buy a brick to honor your military service or your loved one's military service. And again, that's at USMCMemorialFoundation.org. Ben Martin, uh, when we went to break, you said that 
Uh, Abraham Lincoln had uh, had actually done a, a wrestling match, uh, so it was wrestling, not boxing, but wrestling. Right. And you know, I, I find that so interesting in today's age. Uh, I guess, in a way, I guess we have uh, wrestling on television and all, but just two individuals getting together and wrestling. I mean, that doesn't quite happen in in twenty twenty three America to to settle anything, does it? No, but it, it helped. It happened a lot back then, and, and we learned from our study of the Revolutionary War about another uh, a great founder, Daniel Morgan, was a great wrestler, you know, and, and uh, so he gained a reputation. You know, and Lincoln is the only president of the United States that uh, is entered into the Wrestling Hall of Fame. Uh, oh, my I gosh. Knew that. I did so, not. Yeah. So he, he's got a lot of different, uh, he's got a lot of different qualities. But, yeah. but Jim, as, as we were talking about last, he was really doing well in New Salem. I mean, he was running the store. He was doing a great job, had customers. He had respect of, of all the townspeople. And then so he, he was feeling his oats and he said, OK, I'm going to enter this candidate race for the State House of Representatives from Illinois, from the Sangamon County. But then later that spring, so that was in March, and then he later that spring the the Black Hawk War broke out, and New Salem was ordered to field a militia company. The militia uh, men of that the men of that militia company elected Lincoln as their commander, and it, it was his first election win, and it great gave him great satisfaction. And he would say later on in in different biographical sketches that he was the first and most memorable. That was his first and most memorable election, and so. He he got pulled out of New Salem to go do that. Luckily, the Black Hawk War only lasted a few months, from April to July of 1832. Uh, during that time, Lincoln and his men were deployed within the state, but away from New Salem. They saw no combat action, but during his time as captain of the militia company, Lincoln had gained the respect of those men, too. And that would pay great dividends for him later in life. When they returned to New Salem, Lincoln discovered that he now had 12 opponents in his race for four at-large seats in the state legislature from Sangamon County. He had very little time left to campaign in the other parts of the county for the election that was being held in August. He finished eighth, but was heartened by the fact that he had won 275 of the 278 votes that were cast in New Salem. And this was encouragement enough for him to look forward to the next election for the State House in 1834. And while Lincoln was encouraged by his showing in the election for a House seat in the state legislature, he was saddened by the failure of his business venture. When he returned from his militia service, he found that Denton offered his uh, entrepreneur buddy had closed his store in New Salem, and, and the Lincoln had no job. He took the money he had earned in the militia to invest in a new store with a new partner named William Berry. But that store failed, too, and Lincoln was now in debt by up to $1,000, which was a big sum back then. And so he was forced to find odd jobs to pay his debt and to make ends meet. 
his new one friends. And new so he, did, he didn't get a government ba- bailout then, no, huh? No. And his <laughs> okay. new friends that he had just won, you know, the people that he had been impressing while he was in New Salem, to include the village physician, Dr. John Allen, installed him as the postmaster of the village. They also got him appointed as deputy surveyor of Sangamon County. Now, we remember George Washington was a surveyor, too. Although Lincoln knew nothing about surveying, he bought a compass and a chain, studied the basic textbooks of surveying so that he could do the job. Now, these jobs helped him get by, quote-unquote, but little else. Then a creditor, who could no longer wait for his money, forced Lincoln to sell his compass and chain to pay his debt. Although he had little else, Lincoln had an abundance of two things. One was self-confidence, and the second was an extraordinary capacity to win friends. One of those friends, George Close, said, and I quote, Lincoln need not be with a man more than an hour to gain his goodwill. And short though the Black Hawk War was, it was more than long enough for Lincoln to win friends and admirers he would rely on for the rest of his life. One of those men was John Todd Stewart. Now, you'll recognize that middle name, Todd, as his wife's name. John Todd Stewart was a prominent lawyer and politician. He said, I fell in with Lincoln first when he was captain. And other notable friends who fell in with Lincoln besides Stewart as a result of the Black Hawk War were a man named Orville Hickman Browning, who had now set up shop in Quincy, Illinois, was an up-and-coming lawyer, and Ashel Gridley, who would later join Lincoln as a representative in the state legislature and would become a wealthy merchant in Bloomington, Illinois, and Sidney Breeze, who would become chief justice of the Illinois Supreme Court. All of these were friends that he had gained while he was the captain of the militia company. But of these, John Todd Stewart was the most important of all to Lincoln. He, like Lincoln, was a Kentucky immigrant in Illinois. They sat in the Illinois legislature together. He had a thriving law practice in Springfield. He proposed in a private conversation to Lincoln that he should join him in the practice of law. He loaned Lincoln the necessary books, and Lincoln took the books to New Salem and again as he'd had with the surveying books, went at it. He would study day after day for weeks at a time. And in the fall of 1836, Lincoln earned his license to practice law in Sangamon County. Then, less than a year later, in April of 1837, he gained his license to practice law throughout the state of Illinois. Stewart then invited Lincoln into his office as a junior partner. Lincoln abandoned his hopes of becoming a commercial business success, became a lawyer, left New Salem, moved to Springfield, and never looked back. Then we turn now, Kim, to our attention to Lincoln's political career in Illinois. As we discussed earlier, Lincoln began his political career in 1832 of March, March of 1832, as a candidate for that four at-large seats to represent Sangamon County. We know he lost that race due mainly to his time that he spent as captain of the militia and could not campaign. How did he run? Which party did he represent? 
and what was the platform upon which he ran. Now, this is something we're going to get into that most of us don't know about the American political system. When our founders framed the Constitution, no one who participated in the convention at Philadelphia had thought to include anything about political parties. At that time, none existed in America. Many of the founders thought and hoped because of the great structure of our Constitution and the universal and timeless Republican principles contained therein, that America would be of such a mind to be so devoted to those principles and the government based upon them, and that devotion would bring us all together as a republic, and that there would be no need for different parties to represent different principles of republicanism. It was something in which all Americans believed, supported, and equally participated. As we know, this thinking dissolved in less than a decade after the Constitution was ratified. And George Washington warned against <clears throat> political parties in his farewell address in 1796. American politics became polarized into the Federalist represented by Washington, Hamilton, and Adams, versus the Democrat Republicans, or just Democrats, represented by Thomas Jefferson. Well, and I mean, it didn't take that long to devolve into these uh, political parties, and we're so polarized now, uh, Ben Martin. What, what's your thoughts on what's happening right now in America? Well, it's, it's pretty similar, except back then, they, they really had the belief that they had developed such a great system. And, and if you look at it today in the lens of history, in the lens of time, it is, still is, the greatest government that was ever created in the world and, uh, to, to run a country, to, to a civic government. And, and uh, we need to, to go back to that. Most people that I talk to don't really know much about the Constitution, and, and therefore they can't appreciate the greatness of it. And, right. and we need to get back to that, like so many uh, people are talking about today, that, that really believe in America and know the greatness of, of our government, that we should. The problem is our government, as Adam said, was based upon having you know, a moral a moral society, a virtuous society. And he said, as we get away from that, we become more corrupt, corrupt, and we are in greater need of tyrants. And just like what was was happening there, you know, with all of the lawlessness, they're having the, we're having the same problem now. And that moves us to distrust the government and distrust our Constitution and undermine it and could throw us into anarchy and, and, and tyranny. So the, but there was a big difference back then, Kim, uh, about the, the parties. The Democrats were led by Thomas Jefferson, who thought banking and commerce were evil. He said banks, this is, what, this is what Jefferson said, banks lent money, which created debt and trapped naive farmers and unsuspecting citizens. Commerce swapped paper money, stocks, and certificates of deposit that were not dependable, according to the Democrats. Democrats thought the only real wealth was in land. They thought the only virtuous way to make a living was through agriculture our virtuous farmers. He said, let the decadent rulers of Europe trade and engage in commerce. America would remain a country of independent farmers who own their own land, raised what they needed without any need to trade with other nations. He said, this sounded great to the American farmers who made up the dominant sector of our American economy, but it did not make any economic sense. 
And that is so fascinating. Uh, And there's no way that the country would... I think grow or flourish to where we're at right now. And, and just a question. Yeah. I, uh, the, the, as you mentioned, America, the idea of America is the most amazing, um, government that's ever been put in place for humankind where everyday people could thrive and flourish. And I'm concerned that we are living on the fumes of liberty right now. And that's why we have must understand the importance of our founding and the constitution because we if we don't get this this thing turned around i mean because of this great idea we are at the pinnacle of human flourishing but um but i think that we're on the fumes of liberty right now what do you think and and that's exactly what lincoln was saying back then you know when he and he said hey look just because we've become a we've been a government we've been a country so long which, again, was less than four score at that time. He said, that doesn't mean we will be that way forever. We have to always be vigilant. We always have to be vigilant of the approach of danger. That's what he said in that first speech in the Lyceum. And he said, you know, you have to be aware of that. And that we can, this, 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 uh, this anarchy, that we, this lawlessness that, that develops makes us not trust our government and get away from the principles in our Constitution, and that gives a chance for some tyrant to, to rise up and take advantage of that. And so he said, you have to be on, on your toes all the time. And so... Um, so let's about, let's yeah. stop right there for just a, sure. a moment, Ben Martin, uh, because we get to have these great co- um, conversations because of great sponsors like Roots Medical. Every family needs a healthcare team that has your child's best interest as the priority, and Roots Medical is proud to offer exactly that. At Roots Medical, we strive to empower and educate both parent and child about the importance of gut health, how to implement healthy changes in the home, and of course, all of the benefits that come with a fully optimized immune system. Same day and sickness appointments are available and easy to schedule. For more information, visit rootsmedical.net. That's R-O-O-T-S medical.net. Roots Medical, getting to the root of your healthcare concerns. Inflation is rocking our boats, especially for individuals on fixed incomes. If you are 62 years or older, mortgage specialist with Polygon Financial Group, Lauren Levy, can help you navigate this inflation squeeze with a reverse mortgage. Additionally, if you are considering buying a new home, refinancing your existing home, or consolidating high interest debt, it's not too late to lock in an interest rate before interest rates increase again. Don't wait. Kim Munson recommends you call Lauren Levy today at 303-880-8881 for a no-cost consultation. That's Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. It's more critical than ever to get the firearms training you must have to be confident in protecting yourself and your family. Learning from the expertly trained instructors at Franktown Firearms and Shooting Range, you will learn the skills necessary to be ready for anything you have to deal with. If you learned how to shoot by way of Granddad Taught Dad Taught Me, you may be missing critical elements of safety and proficiency training that can only be learned in the right environment with a knowledgeable and industry-leading instructor who can analyze and diagnose shooting mistakes, helping you prepare properly. At Franktown Firearms, they believe understanding how guns work Learning the fundamentals the right way and being confident in using a gun can mean the difference between life and death. When people leave Franktown classes, they feel empowered. They look forward to practicing and getting more training. Go to franktownfirearms.com and sign up for one of our training classes today. 
Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter there. And you can email me at Kim at Kim com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. Uh, we're doing uh, our, our second um interview with Ben Martin regarding uh, Lincoln, Mr. Lincoln, Life and Sword. And is this really the first time of political parties here in Lincoln's time, which is what, less than 80 years after the, the country was founded? Ben Correct. Martin? I mean, and they, and they actually, the the party started, you know, like I said, less than a decade after our Constitution was ratified. But it but the Democrat Party lasted for, a, as a dominant party, uh as the dominant party for over 60 years in our country at the time. And we talked about how it sounded good to the Democrats and it sounded good to their their platform, sounded good to the American farmer who was who represented the largest segment of the American population at the time. But in 1812 through 1814, America was again engaged in civil war. Or in war, I'm not in civil war, against, uh, once more, the greatest of all those evil commercial and economic European countries, Great Britain. And it was almost a catastrophe for, for our underfunded, ill-equipped, undersupplied American forces of the virtuous Jefferson farmers. President Madison and the American government was forced out of, of Washington, D.C. at that time, and... The, out of and the White House was burned. The War of 1812, some severe second thoughts uh, were raised among the Democrats then, the many of the Democrats, none more than the talented Kentucky congressman named Henry Clay. Now, Henry Clay is considered one of the three greatest senators in U.S. history. In 1816, he called for a founding of a second bank that Jefferson had let the first Bank of America let the, let their charter lapse, the one that Hamilton had started, and so Henry Clay said, "No, we can't do this. We can't. We we almost lost this war. This is a disgrace." So he was he set out uh, legislation to form a second Bank of the United States. He submitted legislative proposals for transportation projects. Uh, for manufacturing, for supporting manufacturing and marketing, for a national tariff to protect American manufacturing from competition from foreign goods. And in 1828, Andrew Jackson became the president and leader of the new Democratic Party. And in 1832, he voted Clay's, he voted, he vetoed Clay's initiatives. Clay formed a new political party then called the Whigs named after the old English political faction that opposed monarchy and tyranny in the 18th century. The American Whig Party platform opposed Johnson's policies, accused Jackson of being a dictator, supported American business and American religion, became the party of the small-scale urban business and finance. Democrats called the Whigs the party for the rich. The Whigs responded as the party of the economic good, uh, economic opportunity, social morality with a close alliance with the American religions, and the National Union. And in 1832, when Lincoln announced his candidacy for Illinois House, he did so as a Whig. 
He was in favor of commercial systems that Clay was proposing. His flat platform consisted of government-sponsored transportation projects in Illinois, similar to Clay's. In 1834, Clay became Lincoln's bow of an ideal statesman. An Illinois state bank was also proposed by Lincoln at that time to issue paper money to facilitate large-scale commercial transactions rather than only hard coin or what they called species back then. Think about $1,000 worth of gold or silver coins versus $1,000 of paper money. Paper money was the only way to make U.S. competitive with Great Britain government backing to regulate and guarantee the full faith and credit of that paper had to be a part of it. And internal improvements such as road structures, canals, bridges, railroads to increase the commerce so that we could trade effectively with foreign states. And so he also thought that the sale of public lands to fund state banks in lieu of taxes on the people to fund the internal improvements that he spoke of. In 1834, Lincoln was elected to the Illinois State House and was reelected in 1836, 1838, and 1840. Lincoln became one of the chief proponents of business and entrepreneur friendly economic environment in Illinois. He learned the nuts and bolts of politics and how to move legislation through the Legislative Assembly. His third term, he was acknowledged as leader of the Whigs in Illinois. And in 1838 and 1840, he was put forward as a candidate for Speaker of the Illinois House. Now, that was all great, and he made these great things. Uh, he, he, He had taken such great strides as a politician and to do the things that he thought would help the American people. And in 1842, he he gave another notable speech called the, the to the temperance uh, people in Springfield, Illinois, and it was called the, the Washingtonians, the temperance of the Washingtonians, and they they were a special group that changed the way that you treated uh, people that were uh, that, that were intoxicated or that were under the influence of alcohol, and and it was a, and it kind of reflected upon the way that Lincoln would handle other situations in life. He wouldn't be hard and 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 uh, and necessarily down on the people that were creating things, but he would use moderation on, on his approach to things and try, as he had with the people that he, he had formed friendships with in uh, New Salem and in Illinois, he would try to, to learn from them, learn what they, were, they, what they needed, in other words, try to provide that to them instead of always being harsh. That's why he was not an abolitionist, which in, in said that we have to have the, the uh, we have to have the removal of slavery right away. So his speech was good, and it under it made people understand Lincoln's approach to government, his approach to things. And wow. in the end of that speech, because it was a, a it was a Washingtonian temperance, uh, he, he gave him credit for all that. And at the end, he ends his speech with this fitting eulogy to George Washington. is very. Uh, short. And so I wanted to give that as the last okay. part of this. Great. We've got about oh, 20 seconds. Can we do this it in then? Yeah. This is the 110th anniversary of the birthday of Washington. We are met to celebrate this day. Washington is the brightest name of earth, the mightiest name of earth, long since mightiest in the cause of civil liberty, still mightiest in moral reformation. 
On that name, a eulogy is expected. It cannot be. To add brightness to the sun or glory to the name of Washington is alike impossible. Let none attempt it. In solemn awe, pronounce the name. And in its naked, deathless splendor, leave it shining on. Oh, Ben Martin, thank you so much. And we will be talking to you again next month. This is absolutely fascinating. Ben Martin, thank you. Oh, enjoyed it. Thanks, Kim. And my friends today, be grateful, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. My friends, you are not alone. God bless you, and God bless America. Stay tuned for hour number two. It's the Kim Munson Show. Analyzing the most important stories. Socialization of transportation, education, energy, housing, and water. What it means is is that government controls it through rules and regulations. The latest in politics and world affairs. Under this guise of bipartisanship and nonpartisanship, it's actually tapped down the truth. Today's current opinions and ideas. On an equal field in the battle of ideas, mistruths or misconceptions, and it is getting us into a world of hurt. Is it freedom? Or is it force? Let's have a conversation. Indeed, let's have a conversation and welcome to hour number two of the Kim Munson Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You're each treasured, valued, you have purpose. Today, strive for excellence. Take care of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your body. My friends, we were made for this moment. And thank you to the team I work with. That's producer Steve, producer Luke, Zach, Patty, Keith, Charlie, Echo, all the people here at Crawford Broadcasting. Happy Monday, producer Steve. What a great first hour we had. It was. It always is when Ben's here. But uh, yes, happy Monday. Happy Monday. And um, let's uh, jump over here to our quote for today. Um, we're talking about Lincoln in the series that we're doing with uh, we're, that we're broadcasting with um, Ben Martin. And so I found this and I thought it was so interesting uh, because it's kind of a this whole redefinition of words, redefinition of narratives that's happening. Apparently, it's probably nothing new. And Abraham Lincoln was an American lawyer, politician, statesman. He was our 16th president. And um, he led us through the American Civil War. Uh, protecting us as a constitutional union, succeeded in abolishing slavery, was born in 1809 and died in 1865. And he said this, he said, and apparently he had this great sense of humor and extremely well-read. People really liked him. But he said, how many legs does a dog have if you call the tail a leg? The answer is four. Because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. And in my mind, I'm like calling a boy a girl doesn't make the boy a girl or, or all of the other redefinitions that we are seeing in uh, 2020, well, 23 America. But these redefinitions are chipping away at foundational principles. And I just thought, I just thought that was very related to what's happening. Producer Steve, you think? Well, I, I said in the first hour, I think a politician doesn't utter any phrase without something spurring it or motivating it. And I'm just curious, in that particular quote of his, what was he addressing at the time? And I'd really love to know, because like yeah. you, you've already made the tie to the way things work today, but it's uh, it's curious. 
Yeah, what they what were they trying to redefine? And, and I'm wondering if it was some big question regarding slavery, because there was the justification for slavery that people were justifying that in their mind, just like we see justification of different things in our society today and which chip chip away at foundational principles so i it's a good question well maybe ben will know we'll have to ask him about that next month huh (laughs) well and we don't want to take it for granted because i'm sure i know that more than one of our guests last week pointed to what happened at silicon valley bank and made you know in terms of the causation and the explanation thereof uh it was this very thing, this this wokeism, and uh, you know, it's 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 got itself into corporate America, and it's almost like you just wish they would stop. You know, it's like watching kids throw stones at a hornet's nest. Sooner or later, I mean, it's really going to come back and get us. Right. And you mentioned Silicon Valley Bank. And on the text line, the text line is 720-605-0647. We had a listener that asked to get Jay Davidson on regarding the bank failures. We had him on uh, just immediately, but it's probably we should probably try to get him on again. Um, I'll I'll work on that for next week um, because there's been new developments. And uh, so I will go to work on that for our listener that mentioned that. Um, But the show comes to you because of a lot of great sponsors. And one of those great sponsors is the Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance Team. And a great sponsor of the Kim Munson Show is the Roger Mangan State Farm Insurance Team. And, Roger, it's great to have you in studio. I have so many questions. Recently, there were headlines that the, there's thefts of uh, Kias and Hyundais in Colorado and that some insurance companies will not insure some of those models. And so, I mean, this is difficult for people. This is for, difficult for dealers that are selling these cars. What's your thoughts on that? Well, they're both very popular cars. They're well-made, uh, and they uh, give a lot of value for what you pay. Uh, the problem we have with those kinds of cars is if they're newer cars and they have a push-button start mechanism, we will insure them. But the older ones coming to us, for example, with key ignition starts, we will not insure them. The pre- predictability of theft is so rampant and so predictable that it's almost a guaranteed loss for us, so we are restricting our exposure to cars, Kias, Hyundais that have a key ignition start. Push-button starts are still okay. Now, why is that? I would think, uh, being a novice, that a key would be more secure than a push-button. Well, there's a computer chip in the key fob that when you push that button, it makes a connection. So it's very difficult to steal that car, whereas a uh, key-inserted start it's just a matter of crossing wires, and the thieves oh. know that. And in Colorado, you know, we had $75,000 or 75,000 cars stolen in 2021. We were second or first in the nation in 2021 with car thefts. The city of Denver was number two in that year, but the number one place was Bakersfield, California, where they stole more cars there than in the Denver market. And most of them are stolen, not most of them, I should say, a good percentage of them are stolen out of airports. DIA, for example. If you go to DIA and you lock your car and pick your bag up and jump on the shuttle and go for a week, the people who are stealing those cars are following you and they're 
able to determine that there's a good a good target for us to take because those people won't even know their car is stolen. Gosh, in in that scenario, it almost would be less expensive to pay your neighbor to to take you out to the airport or get an Uber or a Lyft because if you come back and your car is not there, then you could be looking at what deductibles and all kinds of different things. Yes, right? it's it's a real issue, and that's a good point, Kim. Someone should take you out there, and they can drop you off right at the. Uh, baggage area and you can go in up one escalator and check in and be on your way boy the other thing though is is i think it's irresponsible that we have this kind of crime particularly at dia where people cannot be assured that they park their car and then they come back after their trip and it's gone there's something there's something not good about that roger Yes, and some of those places uh, that you can park on the perimeter of the airport have gates and QR codes to get in and out. I would suggest that if someone's going to do it. But if you go to an inexpensive lot on the outlying area of the airport and there isn't any gate, per se, to keep protect your car, you're you're asking for trouble. Okay. Yeah. What about the parking garages? Is that uh, uh, safer or or not? As in, I mean, airport, yeah, at the airport. Yeah. Oh, at the airport. Yeah, that would be very safe, but very expensive. And okay, got go, it. Go for ten days. You're going to spend almost two hundred dollars to park your car. That's why having somebody take you out <laughs> would be a really good idea. So. Yes. So, Roger, you and your team are so focused on. Uh, your your clients and so how can people reach you? And you you are taking new clients as well, yes? Absolutely. Yeah, you, know, you can be reached at three zero three seven nine five eight eight five five. I've had that same number for forty seven years. I love that forty seven <laughs> years in business. And Roger, it is great to have have you as a sponsor of the Kim Munson Show. It's our pleasure. Thank you. This is called service. You hooked me up with auto and renters. Props to my insurance mentor. You made it easy to cover my bed in a box and my extensive collection of clocks. You know, I find it kind of funny that you also saved me money. You've got that good neighbor charm. Give it up. For State Farm. There are always opportunities in changing markets, and the metro real estate market is no exception. That's why you need to work with seasoned REMAX Alliance realtor Karen Levine when you buy your home, sell your home, consider opportunities of a new build, or explore investment properties. Rising interest rates are spurring creativity, innovation, and opportunity in the real estate and mortgage markets. Kim Monson highly recommends award-winning REMAX realtor Karen Levine. Call Karen Levine today at 303-877-7516 for answers to all your real estate questions. That's 303-877-7516. Stay up to date on issues in public health and science by signing up and reading Dr. James Lyons-Weiler's latest articles at Popular Rationalism on Substack. Find more information about Popular Rationalism at KimMunson.com. You'd like to get in touch with one of the sponsors of The Kim Munson Show, but you can't remember their phone contact or website information. Find a full list of advertising partners on Kim's website, KimMunson.com. That's Kim, M-O-N-S-O-N, dot com. 
And welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter there. And you can email me at Kim at Kim Munson dot com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice. We search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. I am so pleased to have on the line with me Randall O'Toole. He is an expert in transportation questions, in uh um, land planning issues, you can find him at ti.org forward slash anti-planner. And uh, Randall O'Toole, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you today? And I'm doing well, and I so appreciate your perspectives. And there is this new moniker out there called the 15-Minute City, where uh, within a 15-minute walk or bike ride, you should be able to get to everything you need in life. And I see big danger in this. It's it's just a new name for uh, this uh, movement that has been occurring throughout um, planning departments and municipalities and counties. Uh, but it has a new name, but or maybe it's an old name. What What's your thoughts on this, Randall? Well, funny, the the name goes back about 10 years, and it was originally called the 30-Minute City. And then they said, well, you know, Americans, they're not going to walk 30 minutes anywhere, so we better cut it down to 15 minutes. And one of the advantages for them is that a 15-Minute City meant it had to be even denser. And this is really what it comes down to, is that urban planners think that people should live in really dense cities, like San Francisco or Manhattan, and that the idea of living in low-density suburbs is really terrible to them. Uh, and, And you haven't even heard, they now have a new kind of thing. It's called the 20 minute suburb. If we have 15-minute cities and 20-minute suburbs, which seems really peculiar to me because they think uh, American city dwellers won't walk more than 15 minutes, but for some reason they think suburbanites will walk 20 minutes. But the point is they they accept that suburbs aren't going to be quite as dense as cities, or they're going to still be a lot denser than they are today. a proponent of 15-minute cities recently wrote, what is a 15-minute city? And he answered, it's every city ever built by humans until a century ago, but with a catchy new name. And I immediately thought, oh, so you mean a 15-minute city is really crowded, it's really noisy, uh, the average home size is really tiny, grocery stores are small and high-priced, crime and contagious disease are continuing worries, Income inequality is high, and only the wealthy enjoy true mobility. Most people are limited to how far they can get by walking because they've made cars so expensive that most people can't afford to drive. And and I feel like, you know, if 15-minute cities were so great, we did have them 100 years ago, according to this definition. Why don't we have them today? It's because we don't want them. We like to have a 15-minute city that we can drive to in 15 minutes. If you can drive somewhere in 15 minutes, you can reach hundreds and thousands of more destinations than you can reach by 15 minutes up by walking, which means you can get better jobs, you can find better housing, you can get lower-cost consumer goods, you can find supermarkets that have 50,000 items on their shelves instead of 5,000, you can get better health care, you can get all kinds of things in a 15-minute automobile city, that you can't get in a 15-minute walking city. 
And that's what they want to do. They want to deny us all the things that we have today because of our incredible mobility. We're the most mobile people on Earth, and that gives us access to things that you can't get uh, in, uh, by walking. And why? why who, it's who and why do they want to deny this mobility for everyday people? Well, as I say, the urban planners have for, for really generations thought that Americans should live in higher densities than they live today. Back in 1993, some planners got together and formed a group called the Congress for the New Urbanism. New urbanists think that everybody should live in five-story apartment buildings. And it's no surprise you're seeing five-story apartment buildings pop up all over Denver and Portland and other cities around the country because that's what the planners want. And in 1993, the Congress for the New Urbanism wrote a manifesto saying all development should be in the form of compact, walkable neighborhoods. This is 1993, so it's really the 15-minute city, except for it's, they didn't use that term. And they also said that all suburbs should be reconfigured into such compact, dense neighborhoods, communities of real neighborhoods. It's not a real neighborhood unless you walk everywhere. If you drive, it's not real, according to them. So uh, it didn't matter to them whether people wanted to live that way or not. The planners know how you should live better than you know, and so they should get to decide what kind of a city you live in, what kind of a suburb you live in, and how dense it is, and everything else. So, Randall, you and I have talked about this before, but the, these uh, four-story apartment buildings, well, and Obama had, it was called Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing, where they, uh, they wanted to, I think it's a real assault on our single-family neighborhoods. They want to have um, four-story apartment buildings in neighborhoods. It changes the, uh, that are rental units, not, uh, not condos, uh, and it changes the fabric of the single-family neighborhoods. And we've had an, um, I've had a guest on out in uh, the Parker area. There was some land that was rezoned from resident, excuse me, from rural to a four-story apartment, affordable housing apartment building, which doesn't fit into the the whole area out there. It's single-family homes. But I feel that this is an assault on single-family home ownership. And we're, as you mentioned, we're seeing this everywhere in the Denver metro area. What's your thoughts? Well, California and Oregon have both abolished single-family zoning. Cities in those states are not allowed to have single-family zoning anymore. Minneapolis has abolished single-family zoning, and they're increasing densities incrementally. They initially said, well, we're just going to have four plexes, or we're just going to have eight plexes. But they've already decided, after abolishing single-family zoning in, in California and Oregon, that's not going to make housing more affordable. So they're going to have to have, you know, 16 plexes and 32 plexes and 64 plexes and so on uh, in order to make housing affordable. And here's the kicker. Four- and five-story apartment buildings cost more to build per square foot than single-family homes. You need a lot more concrete and steel, and you need to put in elevators and things like that, and all that stuff is really costly. And so we're not talking about 10% more. We're talking about 50 to 100% more. So when they say a four-story building is affordable, what they mean is they're going to divide it up into 600-square-foot apartments, 
and then rent them, and they're probably going to have to subsidize them even at five to 600 square foot because people don't want to live that way. So rent them at so-called affordable prices, subsidized prices, and then the people who live there are supposed to be happy that they have a 600 to 700 square foot apartment instead of living in a 2,000 to 2,500 square foot house, which is the average house that's being built, the size of the average house is being built in the country today. So they're not making housing affordable. They're making it less affordable, uh, especially in Oregon and California, where they're tearing down single-family homes or reducing the supply of the kind of housing that people want in order to get more housing that people don't want. Is this the brainchild of the World Economic Forum? Because, uh, and, and I, I kind of recognize this all started in the early 90s. Is this, is this been the, the brainchild of the World Economic Forum? No, absolutely not. You know, I've read all those world documents, Agenda 21, and so on and so forth. And uh, first of all, those documents don't say anything about this. Um, they say things like, well, use mass transit where it's appropriate, or uh, build dense housing where it's appropriate. Well, who can argue with that? You know, I'm not against doing anything where it's appropriate. They don't require anybody to do that or anything like that. All of this is coming from our own homegrown urban planners. Most urban planners in this country go to school in planning schools that are associated with architecture schools. And, and architects tend to be really arrogant. They think they should get to decide what kind of houses we live in. It's really disappointing to them that most people don't hire an architect to build their house for them. Uh, and most people don't like the houses that architectures, architects build because they tend to be really hard to modify and really hard to adapt if, if you're taste change and things like that. And so uh, urban planners just extend that even further. They like to say, we shape our cities and then our cities shape us. And what they mean is we, the urban planners, should shape the cities so that the cities then shape your behavior. Because they think if they force you to live in a higher-density city, you're going to drive less than if you live in a low-density city. And they think cars are evil, and so anything that gets people out of their car is worth doing. It's all but, coming from local U.S. urban planners. None of it is coming from the United Nations or the World Economic Forum or anything like that. Okay, I, and I, I've always wondered, though, is if the United Nations World Economic Forum had influenced these urban planners, because it seems to me like, it, maybe it's coincidental, but it seems like it is pushing that agenda of, of the World Economic Forum of you will own nothing and be happy about it. Because if you don't have a home ownership, if you're just paying rent, the people that own the apartment buildings are getting rich. And then the other thing you just uh, kind of mentioned is is that many times this has to be subsidized. So that means taking money from one person to subsidize the rent of another person. And um, that's not fair. That's not sustainable, you think, Randall? No, that certainly isn't. But back to the World Economic Forum, if anything, our urban planners are influencing them. You can trace these ideas in the United States urban planning literature back to at least 1972 and uh, really back to 1961. 
uh, a, a non-urban planner wrote a book in 1961 that became extremely influential to urban planners and then was written by, up by urban planners in a book called Compact City in 1972. So, uh, the World Economic Forum, Agenda 21, all that stuff came out first in the 90s. So it was our planners influencing them, not the other way around. But uh, you're right. The, the an interesting thing about subsidies is that most of these subsidies come from regressive taxes like property taxes or sales taxes. Very few low-income people actually end up living in subsidized low-income housing. So that means low, most low-income people are paying regressive taxes for to su- support housing that they aren't actually getting to use. So it's a very unfair, and the, the whole thing is that what they call affordable housing is really just another way for them to impose higher densities on cities. It's not really a way to make housing affordable. The only reason why housing is unaffordable in the first place is because the urban planners convinced cities to put urban growth boundaries around themselves, which limited the amount of land available for the kind of housing people want, single-family housing. It has made housing expensive. So then they say, oh, it's not our fault. It's those evil single-family homeowners who are preventing us from building apartment buildings in their midst. And it's their fault, so let's abolish single-family zoning. Okay, uh, this is so fascinating. When I'm talking with Randall O'Toole, he's an expert in uh, regarding urban planning and uh, transportation issues. You can find him at ti.org forward slash antiplanner. And I want to continue this uh, conversation about uh, the, these 15-minute uh, cities. We get to have these conversations because of great sponsors like Three Points Financial. Three Points Financial, a comprehensive fee-only financial and tax-focused company, considers all the pieces of a client's financial life. There are no sales or commissions involved, and all advice is fiduciary, putting the client first. Mary Alpers and Steve Cruz, co-owners of Three Points Financial, take time to work with you regarding decisions that affect your financial present and future. Whatever is happening in our world and with our economy, you have financial goals that matter. And Three Points Financial offers personal, real-time plans for savings, retirement, investments, and taxes, both tax efficiency and preparation. There is no better time than now to focus on your financial situation. If you are interested in learning more, contact ThreePointsFinancial.com to schedule a no-obligation introductory call. No matter how you define it, inflation is out of control. Increasing prices at the gas pump and grocery stores are hurting everyday people. All these challenges we face are preventable. Individuals must understand what is going on and who is responsible. That is why Kim Munson is bringing truth and clarity to the issues facing our families, our communities, our state, and our country. Now more than ever, it's important to support Kim's independent voice. She has the courage to research and inform you about the real issues. It's not easy, and Kim could use your help. Go to KimMunson.com to contribute. Again, help Kim by contributing at KimMunson.com. That's M-O-N-S-O-N.com. 
welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N.com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. And you can email me at Kim at KimMunson.com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice on an independent station, searching for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you shouldn't have to force people to do it. And that's a great segue into uh, our continued conversation with Randall O'Toole. You can find him at ti.org um, slash anti-planner. I had it up here just a moment ago. Here we go. Yes, ti.org forward slash anti-planner. And he actually has written a piece on these 15-minute cities. Randall, I am troubled as I drive. I drove through Denver down I-25 yesterday and all of these, and, and there are actually apartment buildings that are more than four stories, but you walk and you drive up and down I-25 now and it almost looks like Soviet Russia with all these big box apartment buildings and they may kind of put something of color on the side to make it uh, look a little bit more palatable, but it makes me really sad when I see what's happening to Denver, Randall. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned Soviet Russia. Uh, I said that this isn't influenced by uh, the United Nations, but there was a 1965 book called The Ideal Communist City, and the authors of the book were uh, urban planners from the University of Moscow, and it was translated into English and printed in the United States in 1971. And it actually was footnoted in Compact City, the 1972 book I mentioned. And the authors of this book said uh, people only live 100 and need about 200 square feet to live in per person. And the average family size is four, so therefore the average apartment size should be 800 square feet. So they decided that all apartments should be 800 square feet because everybody's an average. And so their proposal was that everything should be built at 800 square foot apartments in five-story apartment buildings because at that time they didn't have the technology to build taller buildings, and later they did, and so they built even taller buildings. And uh, they said this is, a, this is better than what's happening in the United States because they have urban sprawl, and everybody knows that's evil. So uh, what they really meant was that this way they could have more control, the government could have more control over people where they lived and where they went because they could force them all to live in these compact little villages. And then if anybody dissented or protested or whatever, just look what's happening in in uh, Ukraine today. You know, they just send some missiles and blow up their buildings and, you know, destroy hundreds and hundreds of homes at once. If Ukraine had been built with single-family homes, it would have been a lot harder for uh, Russia to invade. Uh, in any case, um, the the thing is that Although the communists came up with these ideas in 1965, it's clear, reading the book, they're referring to U.S. literature. And you can go back to the 1930s and find uh, American and British urban planners writing about why people should be forced to live in high-density apartment buildings and should not be allowed to live in single-family homes. So this, these ideas go way, way back uh, and, you know, we hear echoes of them from United Nations and from University of Moscow, but they're coming from our own planners who think they know how we should live better than we do. 
Well, and uh, I served on city council for four years, and what I have seen is elected representatives, and I we talk about language all the time, they're not officials, they're elected representatives, they're supposed to represent the people, and uh, we now have these staffs that make very, very healthy salaries to plan, to administer cities. And many times electeds only there for a short period of time, four years, and uh, acquiesce to the planners uh, as they present these different developments. What what do you see as uh, from electeds and uh, what's happening at local government? Well, this is really a constitutional issue uh, because we all know that the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution says that government cannot take people's property uh, for public purposes without compensation. And historically, the Supreme Court has interpreted that to mean that they can't take your property for private purposes. In other words, they can't take property from you and give it to someone else for private purposes. They can take property from you for public purposes only if they pay you compensation. But in 1927 and in 1970 and in uh, 2010, several different Supreme Court cases have said uh, here are city governments wanting to take people's property and either not compensate them or give them compensation, but then use it for private purposes. And they said, well, under the Constitution, that's unconstitutional. But, hey, this city government wrote a city plan. And so that makes it okay. The city plan said that everybody's going to benefit, or at least the city as a whole will benefit, even if some people pay the cost and other people benefit. There's a net benefit overall, and so therefore it should be allowed. The Kelo decision was like that. What's called the Penn Central decision was like that. There was a decision about zoning in uh, uh, Euclid, a town in Ohio called Euclid, it's known as the Euclid decision. All of these decisions said it's okay to violate the Constitution if you write an urban plan. Well, if you're an elected official and you want to violate the Constitution, that means you have to have an urban planner on your staff. So you hire these urban planners who, frankly, don't understand how cities work. And so they try to impose their vision of how they think a city should work on people, and basically, their vision is based on Paris in the 1920s. You know, we, you might have seen the movie uh, Midnight in Paris about how how wonderful it was to live in Paris in the 1920s. And this is what urban planners think. So they want to impose Paris in the 20s on American cities, and uh, uh, they don't understand how cities work. But they've been given carte blanche to do this by the Supreme Court, and since. You and I talk to our city officials maybe once a year, if that, and these urban planners are talking to them every city council meeting and maybe even more frequently than that. Uh, they only hear their side, the city planner side of the story. And they don't hear from people who say, hey, I want to live in a single-family home. I don't want to live in a five-story apartment. Okay, so we had this situation I alluded to in Douglas County where this was a piece of rural property that um, had to be rezoned to be this affordable housing, four-story apartment. Um, and affordable means subsidized, so we need to remember that. And uh, it seemed to me like a direct assault upon 
property rights. Uh, you and I have talked about that single family zoning uh, is is a property right because you you buy that area you you look at that and and this this quote unquote is the promise of what this is going to look like so talk to me a little bit about rezoning what what's your view on that well uh, you know I'd rather not have zoning I'd rather have the system that Houston has in Houston there's no zoning and in some of Houston suburbs there's no zoning. Texas doesn't allow counties to zone, so all of the unincorporated areas around Houston, as well as Dallas and Austin and San Antonio, have no zoning. Uh, instead, what they have are protective covenants, and they don't all all not neighborhoods don't have protective covenants, but some do. And you can decide: do you do you want to live in a neighborhood that has really strict covenants that says you can't park? an RV in your driveway, and you can't have a rusty pickup truck sitting in your front yard. Uh, You can only paint your house certain colors. Or do you want to live in a neighborhood that has loose covenants that says you can park an RV in your driveway, you can paint your your house any wild color you want, Uh, you just can't build an apartment building on on your property, or do you want to live in a neighborhood that has no covenants? Now, if you end up in a neighborhood that has no covenants, you can decide to change that. You can petition your neighbors, and if three-fourths of them agree, you can write your own covenants. You have to get support from 75% of your neighbors. But if you get that, then you can write your own covenants for the entire neighborhood and establish covenants. You can also change the covenants. And it's happened sometimes when a neighborhood is built to a certain taste and a style that people like, and then after a while they don't like it anymore, and a developer will come in and say to the neighborhood, what will it take to what do I have to pay you to change your covenant so I can build some more modern housing that people like today? And people in the neighborhood will say, okay, we'll charge you this much and we'll change our covenants. So it becomes a very flexible and fluid situation. Things like that change only with a 75% vote. So it's, you know, it happens only when it's really popular. Uh, and uh, that system works really well. Now, everywhere else we have zoning, and zoning is really, zoning was invented after protective covenants. It was meant as a way of imitating protective covenants. And they went to neighborhoods and said, uh, you have single-family homes here. We'll pass a zoning rule that will protect your neighborhood so that people don't put in gravel pits or uh, skyscrapers or grocery stores next to your house. And the people said, yes, we want that because we like the idea that our neighborhood will stay a single-family neighborhood. And, and guess what? Home ownership went from 17% in cities. Urban home ownership was 17% in 1890 to 60% in 1960 because of single-family zoning and, and protective covenants. One of those two things was established. They were both established after 1890. And uh, uh, home ownership went way, way up, almost quadrupled because people like the security of knowing that their neighborhood's not going to significantly change without their having a say in it. That's been taken away from us. Urban planners are now saying, you gave us the power to zone, so we're going to decide that you should live in a neighborhood that has five-story apartment buildings in it. So we're going to rezone you with a 60-foot height limit and uh, a minimum density zoning. You have to build at least 30 units per acre to build anything at all. You can't build single-family homes anymore. In fact, in Portland, Oregon, they have zones where if your house burns down, you can't rebuild it. You can only build to the minimum density of the zoning, which is some kind of apartment building. 
Wow. Uh, so what's your answer to all this, uh, uh, Randall O'Toole, to button this up? Well, I think people need to defend single-family zoning, first of all. Uh, you know, going to the legislature and say, let's get rid of single-family zoning and impose the Houston system, that's too complicated to understand. Uh, we need to say, we like our zoning, we like our homes, there's plenty of land in Colorado to build apartments on if people want to live in them. But uh, stop subsidizing apartments, stop penalizing single-family homes, get rid of the urban growth boundaries, uh, and allow single-family zoning to continue where it exists, because people only moved into those neighborhoods after they were zoned. They moved into them because they like single-family homes and uh, don't force change on people that they don't want to have. So people need to get together and go to their legislators and say that, because you know it won't be very long before there's a movement in the Colorado legislature to abolish single-family zoning. Uh, People need to stop that as quick as they can. Oh, absolutely. Randall O'Toole, thank you so much for coming on to talk about these 15-minute cities. And, and this is such a an assault on private property rights, and um, I, I really appreciate it. So we'll have you on again very soon. And again, you can find Randall O'Toole at ti.org forward slash antiplanner. Uh, Randall, thank you. Thank you. And uh, the show comes to you because of great sponsors. Lauren Levy is an expert in the mortgage arena. Inflation is rocking our boats, especially for individuals on fixed incomes. If you are 62 years or older, mortgage specialist with Polygon Financial Group, Lauren Levy, can help you navigate this inflation squeeze with a reverse mortgage. Additionally, if you are considering buying a new home, refinancing your existing home, or consolidating high interest debt, it's not too late to lock in an interest rate before interest rates increase again. Don't wait. Kim Munson recommends you call Lauren Levy today at 303-880-8881 for a no-cost consultation. That's Lauren Levy at 303-880-8881. Every family needs a healthcare team that has your child's best interest as the priority, and Roots Medical is proud to offer exactly that. At Roots Medical, we strive to empower and educate both parent and child about the importance of gut health, how to implement healthy changes in the home, and of course, all of the benefits that come with a fully optimized immune system. Same day and sickness appointments are available and easy to schedule. For more information, visit rootsmedical.net. That's R-O-O-T-S medical.net. Roots Medical, getting to the root of your health care concerns. It's more critical than ever to get the firearms training you must have to be confident in protecting yourself and your family. Learning from the expertly trained instructors at Franktown Firearms and Shooting Range, you will learn the skills necessary to be ready for anything you have to deal with. If you learned how to shoot by way of Granddad Taught Dad Taught Me, you may be missing critical elements of safety and proficiency training that can only be learned in the right environment with a knowledgeable and industry-leading instructor who can analyze and diagnose shooting mistakes, helping you prepare properly. At Franktown Firearms, they believe understanding how guns work, learning the fundamentals the right way, and being confident in using a gun can mean the difference between life and death. When people leave Franktown classes, they feel empowered. They look forward to practicing and getting more training. Go to franktownfirearms.com and sign up for one of our training classes today. Franktown Firearms, where friends are made. 
and welcome back to the Kim Munson Show. I'm Kim Munson. Be sure and check out our website. That is Kim Munson, M-O-N-S-O-N dot com. Sign up for our weekly email newsletter. You can email me at Kim at Kim Munson dot com as well. Thank you to all of you who support us. We're an independent voice and we search for truth and clarity by looking at these issues through the lens of freedom versus force, force versus freedom. If something's a good idea, you, sh- you shouldn't have to force, coerce. Uh, manipulate all of those words to make it happen. Uh, want to hear from you? 303-477-5600. A text line is 720-605-0647. Again, that's 720-605-0647. And did want to mention the USMC Memorial Foundation nonprofit that I dearly love. Uh, they are raising money for the remodel of the Marine Memorial. There's going to be some special events that are, uh, going to be coming up as well that you'll keep, uh, we'll keep you informed upon. But, um, it is so important to recognize, remember, know the stories of those who have given their lives or been will- willing to give their lives for our freedom, our liberty, and, uh, a great place to, to, Remember them is to uh, make a donation to the USMC Memorialfoundation.org. That's USMC Memorialfoundation.org. Text line is busy here. I'll go to this first one. Uh, Yes, I think it is the first day of spring. Is it March? Yeah. Happy spring. It is coming. So that is good. We actually had winter here in Colorado this year. Snow stayed on the ground for a while, so it uh, we really had winter. But uh, am grateful for all of this great moisture that we've received here. I know California is getting an extra lot. Uh, I wish that they would. Uh, I wish that they would actually, from a public policy standpoint, have be planning on how to uh, on these really, you know, rainy days that they could actually keep some of that water so that they could use it for the people of California instead of just sending it right down to the ocean. So let's get over here to Johnny in Denver. Johnny, what's on your radar? Okay. I was listening to uh, some propaganda of NPR. So they oh. uh, were- No, that never, <laughs> that never happens, Johnny. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, they were saying how this prosecutor was such a Christian because he teaches Bible study. But he belongs to a party that teaches killing unborn babies and even born babies is the best way to go. I'm thinking like, okay, that's an oxymoron. Like, like uh, she was talking about this morning. Like, words just just don't make sense. So, are you talking about the prosecutor regarding uh, the potential arrest of Donald Trump tomorrow? Yes. Yes. This okay. guy He teaches Bible study in in, in uh, his his church, and I'm thinking. Okay, well, that doesn't mean nothing to me because if I read the Bible, see the the, the king who decided to kill all two year olds because he was trying to get to Jesus. Uh, that was right. uh, well, was that Herod? <laughs> uh, the, the, yes, and so uh, when these guys say these these things, it's probably speaking to an audience that probably don't read the Bible and and probably just think, well, you could just call you, put that tag on you and and be for all kinds of. Uh, anti-Bible things, but yet that's why he's so righteous in going after Trump. Right. So that's a, that's probably a narrative, as you say. That um, uh, yeah, it's just it's just the narrative <laughs> yeah. to try to to bring legitimacy to what what he is attempting to do. Um, 
Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> but so there's not a whole lot more to say on that, huh? <laughs> yeah. So I, so I, I get, I get so, I wish that they would take away the government funding for this propaganda station and let them try to raise funds on their own if they want to do this propaganda. Now, they did do one good story that had nothing to do with politics. Fantastic. If they just stay out of the politics and just do those humans, human interest stories, fine. But all this propaganda leaning on the left and not in the center or even telling the other side, it's just kind of like I'm paying for that. Right. Okay. That's an interesting point that you would bring that up, Johnny in Denver. You're talking about public radio, public television, and that is not the proper role of government to take money and um, actually then push a narrative. Uh, when I talk about us being an independent voice on an independent station, that means that uh, the people that support us as well as our great sponsors that is, uh, and so we have to hustle to get out there, and we have to bring a product forward that works for people. And um, but the other thing is, is being independent. That means that I'm not controlled by what the narrative is going to be. But it's not fair that government money is being used to to support public radio and public TV. That's not the proper role of government. To your point, Johnny, that's a really important one. Steve, did you? It yeah. Sounds like you wanted to jump in on that. Oh, well, okay. as you you and Johnny were talking here, you said, "Well, public radio, public TV," and I thought, "Boy, anything you put, <clears throat> excuse me, put the word public in front of, like public schools, look out." Yeah, right now that's <laughs> certainly the case. <laughs> so, Johnny in Denver, thank you so much. Have a great day. Oh, you too. Thanks. Okay. Uh, a text message here. It says, uh, um, hey, Kim, you're spot on with these apartment buildings going up all over the city. They remind me of tenement housing in New York. They're ugly and depressing to look at. Uh, how could an initiative be started to have minimum requirements for anyone holding public office? They said they think that um, no one should be in public office if they not owned and run a successful business for a minimum of five years says uh, politicians are great at spending our money when they have no business sense whatsoever. And they're also idealistic instead of realistic on decisions. Um, says politicians have a huge, con- huge contradiction in stating they want everyone to own their own home, yet they want st- to stuff uh, people into 800 square foot cold apartments. It's uh, political theater. I, I must agree with that because ultimately it's about control. Uh, they understand that people don't really want to hear the words control. So they redefine things. They bring up new words, 15 minute city. But when I was on city council, I saw this push towards denser and denser areas. And you see, you're seeing this played out right here in Northern Douglas County in Lone Tree, which is the, um, city council that I sat on as, uh, and I, I didn't quite understand what was happening, but we were had re- having Republicans that were carrying the water, pushing, uh, these apartment buildings. And, and again, we, we, um, minimum number of parking spots instead of realizing that guys with cars, people in apartments might want to have people come over. They, they have cars that they want to park, but yet making it more and more difficult for people to own cars. So control of mobility, control of housing, control of water control of education. It's control, control, control. And so this is not a Democrat or Republican question. This is a a liberty versus control, a freedom versus force question, producer Steve. Well, by the way, I, you know, 
you really caught me, uh, my imagination, because of your descriptor about what you would see driving along I-25, so say, like, from the football stadium going north up to, like, 38th. That was a brilliant description about what that area looks like. The boxy apartment buildings and, you know, (laughs) and their attempts to make them look more appealing, but it still it reminds you of any pictures you you've seen of moscow it, it most definitely and um and this is being pushed forth under the guise of affordable housing a, a variety of different things so one other thing it says uh, let's see in light of sudden multifamily tent city in front of your home how valid are building codes oh excellent excellent point and that is also another direct assault upon property rights when uh how is it that you own your property uh, but yet there can be and so we'll talk about businesses and then have tent cities um you know, pop up right in front of businesses and then the businesses leave. I mean, Portland is in decline. Seattle is in decline. Denver is in decline. And it's because one of the reasons is not supporting private property rights, but also this movement that like with the homeless, instead of instead of addressing the real roots of these causes, there's the mentally ill that's on that, that are homeless. There's nothing compassionate about putting them on a corner, begging for money. It makes the, it, it, they're not pets, they're human beings. And we have to start to recognize that. And these policies that are being pushed by P, PBIs, they do not recognize the inherent value of each and every human being. And of course, we see that right here with this Colorado legislature, beginning with, with the baby in the womb, um, been going through the, the, uh, um, legislation for this week and there the abortion bills are there and it's rather remarkable and one other point that the they want to outlaw the abortion reversal pill so if somebody has uh, decided that they hadn't have taken the medication and they want to reverse that this legislature wants to take away a woman's choice to get to do that. So they're not about choice whatsoever. Uh, the quote for the end of the show, it is a little long, so I want to get to it. It's by Abraham Lincoln. He said, I see in the near future a crisis approaching that unnerves me and causes me to tremble for the safety of my country. Corporations have been enthroned and an era of corruption in high places will follow. And the money power of the country will endeavor to prolong its reign by working upon the prejudices of the people until all wealth is aggregated into a few hands and the republic is destroyed. That's Abraham Lincoln. So my friends today, be grateful, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well of honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals. And like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. We must not give up. You are not alone. God bless you, and God bless America. Out into this great unknown. And I don't want no one to cry. But tell them.